Hey there, yellow chicken nuggets. It's me, Carl. Welcome to camp, or retreat, or whatever you call it. I just have a couple rules to go over with you guys. Well, just one rule. Rule number one, have fun, and that's it. Just having fun at camp. There are no rules. Well, I mean, just the one rule, having fun. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to What's the Wi-Fi Password? The message you're about to listen to is from our 2020 high school winter camp at Mount Hermon. This was an awesome weekend full of shenanigans, teachings, and community with other churches across California. Hope you enjoyed. Great to see all of you. I want you to take out your Bibles. And uh, I know you've been looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at one of those statements in John chapter 11. If you turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 11. The statement we're going to look at tonight is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. So John chapter 11, if you get there in your Bibles. really been looking forward to sharing with with all of you and have been praying for you you know just thinking about the life that is in front of you the responsibilities that are in front of you the decisions that you have to make every single day and the world that you're entering into and the the Christianity that God is calling you to display here on earth I've just been praying for you that God would use this weekend for good things in your life. Has that been happening for all of you? Has the Lord been encouraging you and speaking to you? I really hope so. And also, do I sound really loud right now? Is it just me? I don't need the mic too much, but uh, I don't want to blow you guys away either tonight. That's not the goal. Okay, does that sound better? Okay, good. All right, John chapter 11, that's where we're at tonight. Just going to pray and ask the Lord to help us in the Word. John 11 is the story, just to kind of set the stage for you. How many of you have heard before the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus? Okay, it's inside of that story that Jesus is going to say to Lazarus's sister, I am the resurrection and the life. So that's the whole, whole setting or the whole context. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you lord for every uh, teacher pastor speaker that's gone before me and lord sharing the word and just thinking about jesus what a joy lord for us what an honor to be able to think about christ our great savior and lord and we come to you tonight we pray lord that you'd speak to us about this aspect of who you are that you're the resurrection and the life help us lord to understand what it means that you're the resurrection. And help us, Lord, to be filled with hope that that resurrection power is found in you and to believe in you, to trust in you today, in part because of everything that you did yesterday in the past and everything that you will do, Lord, in the future. So we look to you, we pray that this story would speak to our hearts tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we pray together, amen. I, was, I wanted to start this teaching with a quotation, not from the Bible, but from uh, famous literature from Charles Dickens in his book, The Tale of Two Cities. It begins, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. You guys ever heard that line? You know, that opening paragraph goes on and he, he describes a time of great contrasts where there were all these really good things happening in the world, but also these really difficult and dark things that were happening in the world. And to me, this is a perfect description of the age that we are living in today. They are, in one sense, the best of times, and it seems like, on the other hand, they are also the worst of times. You know, we live in a time where there are great technological advances, great advances in 
science and health and medicine. But we also live in an age where people all over the face of the earth are starving to death. Uh, We live in a time where we can communicate to each other through electronic means quickly, rapidly, and see people all over the world and communicate in real time to anyone almost on the face of the earth. Yet, we also are living in a time where statistics show us there's a radical increase in human loneliness. That people feel by themselves, alone, and separated from others. Uh, We live in a time of incredible prosperity where there's great wealth and people are experiencing uh, abundance and luxury in ways that previous generations could never dream. But at the same time, there are people walking the face of the earth. In fact, most of the earth is living on less than $10 per day. So we, we live in this time where it's the best of times but it's also the, the worst of times. We live in a, in a time and in an age, at least here in the West, where we can do what we want to do. We can go to school to become what we want to become. But we also live in a time where it's scary, thinking about whether there will be a job waiting for me when I get done with college or not. Uh, we live in a time where we look outside and we see the beauty of God's creation. And we have all these creative ways in which to enjoy it and partake of it. But we also live in a time where we're being told that that very creation is winding down, that it's corrupted, that there's something broken and wrong with it, and that part of that brokenness has come from our own doing. We live in the best of times, but they also seem to be the worst of times. And I just think about that because I think many of us sit back and ask the question, what should we do about the times that we're living in? I mean, the last thing I want to do tonight is like stress you guys out about life. You got enough to worry about than to have to worry about the next 50 years of your life and existence and all the things you're going to have to do, the responsibilities you're going to have, the debt you're going to have, the people that are going to be looking at you, but life is tough. And you're going to have to deal with all these different things. And and so the question is, what do I do with all this difficulty, all this brokenness? How how am I to respond? I think sometimes the way we're made to feel is that we must be the rescuers of all that is. Somehow through my actions, I can save a breaking planet. Or somehow through my actions, I can solve the mental health crisis. Or somehow through my actions, I can be the deliverer here on earth. But the reality is none of us can bear that pressure. We know that, right? We can't fix everything ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. And sometimes the advice that people hold out as to, as to how to endure this world, it's interesting, the advice that's given. I mean, my mind scans various bumper stickers that are out there. You know, like sometimes you'll read a bumper sticker and it's like, wow, is this really? Okay, that's the advice that's given. Like, like uh, maybe one that I've seen before is uh, give peace a chance. You know, as if like all of a sudden the rest of us reading that bumper sticker, it's like, what? No way. I never thought about that. That's what we should do. We got to tell the Ayatollah over in Iran and, and uh, the guys over in North Korea. We got to tell everybody, hey, just give peace a chance, guys. And if they could just read that bumper sticker, then the world would just be a better place, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> or another one that I really like, practice random acts of kindness. You know, like, here's the planet, it's winding down, it's dying, pollution's happening all over the place, but you know, like, I'm going to help an old lady walk across the street, and you know what, that's going to fix it. Like, no, it's not going to fix it. But we think some of these things, or I think of the last couple of presidential campaigns, you know, where presidents won an election. What were their campaign slogans? Well, one president ran on hope. That's it. Hope. We didn't really know about what to hope in, but just hope. Just have it. You know, like when you're down and you're in the dumps, just have hope. And then the other was make America great again. Like, okay, how? Where do I start? What do I do to make it great again? I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. But these are the things that are thrown out to us. And sometimes in the midst 
of all of the best of times and the worst of times, some of us might be left asking the question, what is God doing? You know, what is God doing in the midst of all this? What is God doing when people that I know and love are dying of cancer? What is God doing when people on earth are struggling with depression? What is God doing when there are people that are sick and don't have enough food to put on their table? What is God doing in the midst of wars and famines and natural disasters? What is God doing when I'm stressed out about my future and I don't know where to turn and I don't know what kind of decisions to make? What is God doing in the midst of all of that? And the thing that I want to present to you tonight is that, first of all, let me just say this. God is available to help all of his children. This morning at our church in Monterey, I was able to teach Psalm 1. And in those first few verses of Psalm 1, it teaches us that men and women who center their lives around God and his word and delight in his word, they become like a tree that is planted by rivers of living water. And whatever they do, as they delight in God's word, whatever they do will prosper. You see, God has designed us for himself. As we center ourselves upon him and upon his word, he is there for us. He changes us. He transforms us. He helps us and he causes us as human beings to flourish. Because I don't know if you know this, but God designed human beings. He designed your system. So he knows what works. He knows what to put in so that you could have life and he knows what you should not put in so that you can avoid death. So God is available to help all of us. But in this grand scheme of life, what is God doing? What is his plan? And the story that we're going to look at tonight helps us understand God's plan. And I'll just give you a huge fat spoiler alert right now. God's plan is to resurrect his people and resurrect this earth. That is God's plan. He is not interested in preserving. He is not interested in a band-aid. He is not interested in a temporary fix. God is interested through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to make everything new again. God is a resurrector. That's what God wants to do. So he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to create a new people for himself. He is going to raise back to life. You see, in this story that we're going to look at tonight, the people around Lazarus are going to ask the question, Jesus, why didn't you keep him from death? And if you had only been here, he would not have died. But Jesus had a deeper plan than anybody there could imagine. He was going to take Lazarus and raise him back to life, just as all who believe in him will be raised to life one day in him. So what is God doing? God is preparing for the great and final resurrection of all his people and of a new creation that he will establish forever and ever. So we're going to talk about that tonight, okay? So that's the teaching. That's where we're going. You guys ready to actually read some verses together? You guys have your Bibles? John chapter 11. I don't know what uh, version you guys are reading from, but just try to follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard uh, Version, and we're going to look at the first um, 16 verses first of the story. And we're going to go, just so you guys know, we're going to go all the way through uh, verse 44 tonight, okay? So if, if you're kind of wondering, like, when's this going to end? Verse 44 is when we're going to get to the end of our time tonight. So we're not going to go all the way through chapter 11, okay? So starting out in verse 1. You guys there? You guys with me? I love you guys. I love you. Last year I taught, I was a little intense. I don't want to be that way this, this year, okay? I love you guys. I care about you. All right, verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, okay? Lazarus was from a town named Bethany. Bethany was very near to Jerusalem, and Lazarus was there in that town. He's sick. Now it's called there in verse one, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with uh, ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now this is John's way 
of, of writing or communicating to his audience. And what he's doing is he's assuming something. He's assuming that everyone that he's written to has heard about this beautiful thing that Mary did at one point. And he's going to actually write about it, but he hasn't written about it yet in the Gospel of John. He'll cover that in chapter 12. Uh, but, but he just assumes that people have either read the whole book of John already and they're like rereading it, or he assumes that they've heard the legend of this woman, Mary. There was a night about a week before Jesus died on the cross, or a few days before Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus was gathered with his friends in the house of a man named Simon, and this woman, Mary, came in and she worshipped him by breaking this very expensive alabaster flask of oil upon his feet. It was her way of preparing Jesus for his burial because she knew that Jesus was going to die. Everybody else in the room, totally clueless that Jesus was going to die. But she knew, she had that perception, and so she anointed him. She was weeping and all of that. They rebuked her a little bit, but Jesus said what she's done will be told of her wherever the gospel is preached. So John assumes that we know about this woman, Mary. And Mary was part of a family. How many of you guys have siblings? You have siblings. Okay, Mary had siblings as well. She had a sister named Martha. We're going to see her in the story. And she had a brother named Lazarus. Okay, and in this story, these three siblings, one of them is sick. Lazarus. He's ill. And he's so sick that uh, they felt that it would be good for them to go send for Jesus. Okay, so that tells me that he was very sick. And we know later that he actually dies from this sickness. So this is a very severe sickness. It's not like he has a stuffy nose or something like that and they go to get Jesus. This is real grave stuff that they're dealing with. So let's read on in the story, verse three. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's a super Jesus-y thing to say in response to a messenger. It's not Mary and Martha who've come to Jesus. They send a messenger to Jesus. He's probably a couple days away from them. And so Jesus hears from this messenger, Lazarus is sick, uh, and they call him he who you love. And they say, you know, he's sick, Jesus. And Jesus says this incredible thing. He's like, oh, well, you know, this illness, it's, it doesn't lead to death. Now, we know the story, right? Let me ask you, did Lazarus die? Yeah, he died. It's like why it's in the Bible. You know, that's why his story is in there. But Jesus says, no, it doesn't lead to death. Okay, so Jesus is a different image of what's going to happen here. It's not that he doesn't know that Lazarus is going to die. He knows full well Lazarus is going to die, but he knows ultimately Lazarus will live. So he says it doesn't lead to death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Isn't that cool? Just says it right there. John, just thinking about Jesus, he's like, you know, I've seen Jesus do a lot of stuff. I've seen Jesus with a lot of people, and I know that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Did I say and her sister Lazarus? My bad. I saw some of you guys laughing, uh, trying to figure it out. You know, like, why are they laughing right now? It's because I said and her sister Lazarus. She didn't have a sister named Lazarus. She had a brother named Lazarus and a sister named Martha. Okay, so thanks for keeping me in check. I was just testing you right there. Okay. So, but John says that. He's like, wow, you know, Jesus loved these guys. He loved this little family, this, these siblings. He loved them. He cared about them. So, so let's think about that. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait, what? Doesn't that strike you as like a weird response? You know, John's like, Jesus, man, he loved Lazarus, and he loved Martha, and he loved Mary. He loved them so much, and then they sent a messenger saying, hey, Lazarus is sick. You know, the one that you love is sick. And so, you know, Jesus loved them so much, so because he loved them so much, he decided not to go to help. It just kind of strikes the, re it's meant to strike you as, okay, that's, that's like a wrinkle in the story, Jesus is not behaving like I would think he would behave. If he's so loving, if he cares so much, it seems like he would strap up his little sandals and just start running over to Bethany to go help Lazarus before he dies. But that's not Jesus' response. 
Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love him. It just means that he has a different way of showing it than we might think. So let's read on in the story to see what happens. Then after this, Jesus said in verse 7 to his disciples, uh, let us go to Judea again. Now, Bethany, the town, was inside of a region called Judea. So that means we're going to go. We're going to go visit Lazarus. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. The, the previous stories in John's gospel teach us that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, which is inside of Judea, tried to kill Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. So the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you remember this, but last time we were there, um, they tried to stone you. They wanted to kill you. They wanted you to die. And so they say, and are you going to go there again? Like, this isn't really a good idea. How many of you have ever tried to give Jesus advice? Okay, It doesn't work out for the advice giver, but they tried. They tried to give Jesus advice. So Jesus answered in verse 9, are there, again, this is a really Jesus-y response. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Okay, <laughs> that's such a funny response to me. There's, Je there's Jesus' disciples who are like, really, we're gonna go to Judea? That's where they wanna kill you? And Jesus looks at them and he's like, you know, there's 12 hours in the day. <laughs> and people who walk around on earth, they walk around when it's light and not when it's dark because there's 12 hours for us to walk around while it's still light during the daytime the end <laughs> that was his big statement that he wanted to make to these guys i think it was jesus's way of saying hey uh, i'm not trying to hide i don't have anything to hide and i'm willing to go to jerusalem in the full blast of day and if they see me and get me then that's what's going to be now after saying these things verse 11 jesus said to them our friend lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples, though, said to him in verse 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus's death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So again, it's very comical. Jesus says to them, hey, we're going to go to Bethany. Lazarus is there. He's sleeping. And I am going to go and I'm going to wake him up. And they take Jesus super literally. They're just imagining like, there's Lazarus. He's sleeping. Jesus is going to go in and be like, Lazarus, wake up. You know? And they're like, Jesus, you know, you know, when people are sick, they should sleep. They really need to sleep. You should let him sleep. I imagine one of the disciples with his phone out, like, I'm on WebMD, right? now Jesus it says sleep and rest water that's the best thing we got to keep them hydrated and they're giving Jesus the creator of the universe some medical advice so Jesus has to break it down for him he's like uh, well no what I'm saying is Lazarus has died and and I'm gonna go uh, minister to him and for your sake I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe but let us go to him so Thomas verse 16 called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I just like this response from Thomas. He, he has no idea what's going on, really. But, but he just senses like something crazy is about to happen in Jerusalem. They're warning Jesus about the way that people want to get him and all of that. And so he's like, I don't know what's happening right now, but let's go and if he dies, let's die too. You know, it's just like, he's just real intense. And I like this because there's another place in the Bible where Thomas doubts the Lord, doubts that he rose from the dead. And because of that one little episode, we all call him forever. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think like a billion years in heaven, we're going to be like, hey, I'm Thomas. Nice to meet you. Or doubting thomas yeah that's me you know but here this guy is super brave he's courageous he's like let's go die with jesus so, so i like this little response okay before we move on to the next movement of the story i just want to show you what's happening here jesus had a purpose in waiting now 
scholars have done a bunch of scholarly stuff and have figured out how long it would have taken for the messenger to get to Jesus and for Jesus and his disciples to then travel back to Bethany and all of that. And nearly every scholar has come to the conclusion that perhaps by the time the messenger got to Jesus, Lazarus was actually, actually already dead and in his tomb. Or at the very least, there are some scholars who think that by the time the messenger went to Jesus, if they had then traversed all the way back to Lazarus, that if Jesus had immediately gone, Lazarus still would not have lived that length of time. He was, he was going to die. And the reason partly why we know this is because when Jesus finally got there and went to Lazarus's tomb, Martha, his sister, says, Lord, he's been in the tomb already for four days. Okay, so it's not that he's alive. He, Jesus knows he's going to die. There's, there's no time. I'm not going to get there in time. But Jesus has a purpose in this waiting. We read the purpose. Notice in verse 4 with me. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, something is going to happen here that is going to make everybody present say, oh dang, Jesus is awesome. And then another thing that Jesus had in store comes in verse 15. He says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So what Jesus, why is Jesus waiting? He's going to wait we know because he's going to resurrect Lazarus, bring him back to life. But his purpose for raising Lazarus from the dead is so that God could get glory, number one. Then Jesus, as the son of God, God the son, could also get glory. And that everybody watching Jesus that day would believe in Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's important in the book of John, and I'm sure other teachers have talked about this because every one of these teachings has come from the book of John. But all through the book of John, Jesus has been making big claims. And the big, big claim he's been making is, I'm the son of God, God the son, we're co-equal eternally together. That's the big claim that he's been making. And people have been trying to figure out if they believe that or not. And so when Lazarus comes hobbling out of the grave and brought back to life by Jesus, it's all supposed to be done so that everybody standing there could go, he said he was God, now I believe that he's the son of God and God the son. Okay, so that's Jesus's purpose in this, in this whole thing. He is waiting for a reason. He has a purpose in mind. And so this is the first thing I want you to see. Jesus waits to resurrect. He waits to resurrect. He, he, he waits for Lazarus to die. He waits to go. And so often, this is what he will do with us. You know, right now, Jesus is waiting. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are waiting. You know, Jesus almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says, ascended back to the right hand of the Father. You know what the early disciples did when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father? They just stood there looking up into the sky. You know why? Because Jesus had told them, I'm going to leave and I'm also going to come back. And so when he floated into the sky, they're like, maybe he'll come back like right now. And so they were just waiting. Some angels had to come and say like, yo, it's, it's not going to be like that quick, <laughs> you know. It's going to be a little while. You have work to do to go evangelize the nations. You see, Jesus even right now is waiting. And why does he wait? Why does he wait? Why doesn't he just establish his visible, eternal, everlasting kingdom right now? He absolutely could. Well, part of the reason is because of the long-suffering nature of God. God wants to reach into your life. He wants to reach into my life. And he wants to reach into the lives of so many people here on earth who right now do not know him or aren't even yet born so they don't know him. God is loving. God is long-suffering. And he wants to grow and expand his kingdom. And so part of the reason that Jesus is waiting to resurrect his people and to resurrect 
and create a new heavens and new earth is because of his patience, because of his love. But another reason is because this, you guys, is the one chance that you and me have to walk by faith. You know, if you're a believer, then the Bible teaches, and I'll talk about this a little bit in, later in the message, but it teaches that there is a life forever with God. And when you're with God, you'll be able to love God, you'll be able to relate to other people, you'll be able to enjoy his new world that he establishes. But you know, one thing you really won't be able to do is you won't be able to walk by faith. You won't be able to, in heaven, say to yourself, you know, I'm going through a really hard time right now, but I'm gonna lean in to God. I'm gonna pray to God. I'm gonna cry out to him. I'm gonna ask him to meet me in this trial or in this difficulty. You won't be able to do that for all of eternity because there won't be, like, you know, if, if one of your friends in heaven is like, you know, I'm really struggling. I just, I don't know where God is, you know, like what he's doing. Your friend will just be like, he's right there, you know, <laughs> just... He, that's what he's doing. He's just being glorious. Look at that. You know, like that's what will, it will be like. But right now, this is the only chance that we have to walk by faith. This is it. And so Jesus is waiting. He's waiting to resurrect all things. He's waiting to resurrect his people for himself. But did you know that sometimes the Lord will wait in our own lives just personally with stuff that's going on in our own lives? And sometimes he does those things because he wants to work little mini resurrections in the situations in your own life. Sometimes we pray and we cry out to God, oh Lord, would you touch this, would you touch that? And he just still allows it to die. But it's because he wants to work beautifully, powerfully in the situations that we're enduring in our lives today. He'll wait for things to die in our lives as well, so that he can show us his strength and power, so that he can meet us in those dark moments in life. He's building us up for what he wants to do in our lives. I remember years ago, and I have one of my daughters is here, and I have three daughters, and years ago, uh, well, when I was a kid, there was this show on TV, I think it was reruns, but it was called American Gladiators. You should watch it on YouTube. It was incredible. They had these people that like were all steroided out who like had all these incredible names like Gemini and Stardust and like people like that. And they just were all 80s out with big hair and everything, men and women. And these like regular contestants, it was kind of like, um, what's that one show with the obstacle course people do? Yeah, American Ninja Warrior. It was kind of like that, but a way more low-budget version. And, and they had this thing at the end where uh, the gladiator would stand up on this platform with, a, with a, this huge, like, tube gun that shot tennis balls at the contestant as they were trying to weave through this obstacle course and it was like my favorite thing ever and they do this whole thing where the gladiator you know the the referee would be like gladiator are you ready and the gladiator would always just like flex and kiss their bicep and you know like mug at the camera or whatever and then the contestant you know be like bill computer programmer from columbus ohio are you ready and bill would be like i'm ready you know and then they do the whole thing, you know, it was so fun. And I remember this one time at our house, I was like, girls, I was telling them they were all little. I'm like, hey, you know, when I was young, I used to watch this show, American Gladiator. I looked it up on YouTube and I showed it to them. And I'm like, let's do it. Let's do it. So I got this huge Nerf gun and set up like a platform. And then we turned like the couches over and had this whole obstacle course through the whole house. And my youngest daughter, her name's June. She was like four years old, you know? And I'm like, June, are you ready? She's like, I don't know. I think so, you know? And I'm up there with the gun, you know? And boop, 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 you know, just blasting away. And uh, man, we had a good time. And part of the reason I did that, I'll tell you the truth, part of the reason I did that, part of the reason is because it just was so fun. <laughs> but part of the reason was I, as a father, as a, as a man, I knew and still know that I got to help these kids that are in my house build confidence, see that they're strong, that they're able, that they could do it. 
And so partly I just wanted little Junie to get some courage, you know, like, yeah, I, could, I defeated the gladiator, you know, kind of thing. You see, sometimes we go through life and we just want God to get me out of this. Get me out of this. Lord, come. Just deal with it real quick before it gets bad. But he likes often to wait to raise something back to life so that we can see how faithful he is. That he can meet us even in the midst of death. All right, so that's the first part of the story. Let's move on to the second in verse uh, 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already uh, been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. In that culture, they made a really big deal about grieving over death, and this actually is an indication that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were uh, wealthy people, a wealthy family more than likely, because they had lots of people from Jerusalem even coming to visit them and to console them. Now, it says, and... Many of the Jews, we read that, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, if we didn't know any better, doesn't that kind of sound like Martha thinks that maybe Jesus could raise Lazarus back to life? You know, she's like, hey, if you'd been here, he'd be alive still. He'd be well. But I know even now, like, you're nuts. You could do it. Come on. I remember you raised that little girl uh, over in Capernaum from the dead. You raised a widow's son at Nain back to life. And, you know, Lazarus, he's four days in the grave, but that's nothing for you. It kind of sounds like that, right? But we know that's not what she's thinking because later in the story, uh, when Jesus goes and says, hey, bring me to the grave, and then he says, roll away the stone, Martha objects. She's like, Lord, he's been in there for four days, and by now there's a great stench. That's what she's going to say later in the story. So she's not thinking, oh, Jesus, you could do it even now. Really, what she's saying is something more than likely more like this. Jesus, you're amazing. And I know if you had been here, you would have healed him. But you weren't. But that doesn't mean that you're not special still. You're cool. You're amazing. You just couldn't help my brother with this one. But I still love you. I still adore you. Even though you couldn't help us this time. Jesus said to her in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him in verse 24, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. All right, so Jesus just looks at her and he's like, hey, don't worry, your brother's gonna rise again. And she says, oh, Lord, I know. I'm a good Hebrew girl. I've grown up in this culture. And from the time I was a little girl, they told me all about the resurrection of the dead. That people who die believing in God, that one day there will be a great and final resurrection. And my brother, brother Lazarus, I know, Lord, on that last day, he's going to rise from the dead. Thank you for comforting me about that. That's such a sweet reminder that you gave me about that incredible doctrine of the future in the distance, way after what we're going through right now kind of stuff. Thanks so much, Jesus, for reminding me about that. I know that my brother on the last day will rise again. But Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What I want you to see here is that a massive, <clears throat> massive shift is taking place. Jesus is claiming something really big right here. Like I just mentioned, any 
good Jewish believer at that time would have said, there is one day going to be a resurrection of the saints. They've died, they're waiting, and a day will come where God will raise them all back to life. They all would have said that. They all would have confessed that. But here's what Jesus says. That will happen, but it will only happen because of me. And it will only happen for those who believe in me. So much so, Jesus said, that I, he said, am the resurrection and the life. And then he says these mysterious things. If you believe in me, though you die, you'll live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's like this confusion, this blurring of all the lines. Did you know that in the New Testament, when Christians die, it's called falling asleep most often in the New Testament? Because it's like a blur. Like we know that a Christian dies, we see that their body has expired, but in the mind of God, they're not really dead. And so for Jesus, he says, look, it's like you'll die, but never die. It's like you'll perish, but actually always be alive. And though someone dies, they will always live if they believe in me. So I just wanted you to see that. Jesus will raise everyone who believes in him. Imagine what that would have been like. You know, Lazarus was meant to be a good picture of this. He died, but it's like he didn't die, right? I mean, imagine the story that Lazarus got to tell for the rest of his life here on earth. You ever go to like a gathering or something where people are like telling stories where they're trying to like one up each other, you know, like, oh, I went skydiving or I did this or I did that, you know, and, and then like if you're at the party and Lazarus comes in and you're trying to tell your story, you know, like I did this and I did that and Lazarus comes in and he's like, I died. <laughs> That's what I did. I died. They buried me. They put a mummy thing on me and then I rose back to life. I died, that's what I did, but I, now I'm alive. I mean, it just like tops every story that you could possibly have. You'd see Lazarus coming and you just stop telling your story about this cool thing that you did because this guy's story was the greatest of all. He's an image, an emblem for us of what we are like if we believed in Jesus. Though we will die, we will live forever with the Lord. Now, one of the questions we have is, how does that work? You know, what's going to happen? How's it going to occur? How, when will we live forever? And what will, you know, that life forever with God look like? Well, the Bible says actually, uh, not, a, not as much as we might like, but it says quite a few things about what it will be like. First of all, <clears throat> Paul tells us that there will be, some kind of blast of a trumpet from Jesus. The, the final bell, so to speak. And at that point, point, everyone who is in Jesus, they're believers, but they've already died, they will ascend into the air to be with Jesus forever. Then those who are on the earth who are believers and still alive will follow them to meet the Lord in the air. Then there will be this massive party and celebration. The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, where for seven years or so, we are eating and feasting and enjoying and hanging out with Jesus, celebrating with him. Then after that seven years, Jesus is going to look around at all of his people and he's going to say, let's go back and he's going to lead the charge in returning here to earth and establish a beautiful peaceful kingdom on this planet it appears for a thousand years a thousand years of this world working like it's supposed to with jesus as the el presidente the king the leader the ruler of all things and people living in peace and harmony under Jesus and his jurisdiction. Then at the end of that thousand years, it seems that the Bible teaches that the 
There will be the end of this planet. We all know. I mean, you can look at the second law of thermodynamics. It's, it's obvious that this planet is winding down. It can't last forever. And so from heaven, after one final rebellion against Jesus, not from his followers, but from others, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus is right now preparing for us. Because he looked at his disciples the night before he went to the cross and he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And so this new heaven and this new earth and this new capital city called Jerusalem will come down from heaven. And there will be nations and kings and cultures and societies that go in and out of God's capital city. And there will be no sun there because God and his glory will illuminate that place. And you know what else won't be there? No tears. No sorrow, no pain, no hurt, no agony. Because Jesus will wipe away every single tear. And we will be drinking of the river of life and eating of the tree of life and gathered and centered around the throne of God forever and ever enjoying him. That's the resurrection that Jesus is going to win for us. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life Everyone who believes in me, though they die, they will live. That's what he has in his mind. That's what he has in his heart. Okay, are you guys ready to go on in the story? Uh, Verse 28 and following. Let's read it together. It says, when she said this, you know, Martha said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, uh, saying in private to Mary, the teacher's here. And he's calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary, verse 32, came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so Mary says the same thing that Martha had said. These are sisters. They've been talking. And so they say the same thing. You know, Lord, if you'd been here, if Jesus had just been here, Lazarus would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Okay, before we read the final movement, just think about this third movement, this scene. Martha reunites Jesus with Mary. Mary says, Lord, if you'd have been here, Lazarus would not have died. He'd have been alive. He'd have lived. Jesus says, okay, bring me to the tomb. And they go out to the tomb and Jesus sees the whole thing. Now they made a big deal out of death in those days and in that culture. They would actually many times hire professional mourners. How cool of a job would that be? Actually, that's not a cool job, but Can you imagine doing that? Like, what are you? I'm a pro mourner, you know? Like, I'm super good at it. I got this whole thing. Like, what do you want? Do you want the like, you know, or do you want more of like a, just a single tear dropping down? Like, what are you looking for in the mourning process, you know? And so sometimes they'd even have professional mourners there, but you know, people were making a big deal and Jesus sees all this. He sees the grave. He sees people mourning. He sees Mary and Martha He sees it and he's moved in his heart. John says he's moved in his heart. He has compassion. And then it says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He began crying. And people started seeing Jesus cry. And they realized like this is no pro mourner. This is no fake tear. This is real. And so they started saying some of them like man look at Look at how Jesus loved this guy. But then other people said, well, if he loved him so much, then why didn't he get here and keep him alive? 
You know, he's, he's opened the eyes of blind people. He could have also kept this man from dying. I wanted to point out something to you because I think this is so often where we mess up, okay? Mary said to Jesus, you could have kept him from dying. Martha said to Jesus, you could have kept him from dying. The crowd looked at Jesus and said, he could have kept this man from dying. This is like the whole focus. Everybody there, their thought was, the best thing that Jesus could do is preserve this guy's life. That's the best thing that he could do. The, 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 the top thing, if there could be anything that we would want to see happen, it would be Jesus keeps Lazarus alive. He keeps him from dying. But of course, the whole time, Jesus has a way better plan. He's got this whole thing where he's like, I'm not going to just keep him from dying. I'm going to let him die. Then I'm going to raise him back to life. It's a way better story. It's a more incredible thing. And the reason I point that out is because so often, this is what we want God to do. We want God to prop something up. We, we want him to preserve the planet. Or we want him to preserve brokenness. We want him to just come in and put a little band-aid on all the cancers and illnesses and famines of the world. When, like I said earlier, his plan is totally different. He wants to allow us to go all the way through to the process of death so that he can then raise us back to life. This is a beautiful thing that the Lord has given to us. You see, the reality is, is that God, he always knows better than we do you know we're like children when we say why doesn't God do this or why doesn't God do that thinking that we know better than God have you ever just sort of in your mind's eye like thought back to even like four or five or six years ago what were like the major things that you wanted in your life at that time and just thought to yourself that was so ridiculous I can't believe I wanted those things when I was in sixth grade I remember the two things that I wanted more than anything I wanted a hoverboard skateboard because this movie called back to the future had come out and they were skateboarding like hovering on the so I wanted a hoverboard I was looking for one everywhere they don't they didn't make them they at that time but I was looking for a hoverboard I wanted a hoverboard and then also secondly I really wanted this girl Brianna Melanson to know that I was alive that was the other big thing I wanted in sixth grade okay those were the big priorities of my life if I go back even further you know you imagine asking like a little child you know a little kid you know, ask a four-year-old child, hey, what would a perfect planet look like? What would it look like? I mean, if they just played Candyland or something like that, they'd be like, well, like lollipops on the trees. And, you know, I mean, they'd just come up with some dumb idea of what, what things should be like. This is so often what we're like with God. God, I think it should be like this. I think you should do that. When he's just looking at, at us going, don't you see, my plan is so much better. I want to resurrect this whole thing. Just believe in Jesus. Keep spreading the word about him. And the day will come where I will send my son back for all of you. And I will establish a new thing. A beautiful thing. Stop asking me just to preserve when I want to bring resurrection. All right, let's read how the story ends. Jesus, after weeping, it says in verse 38, Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb it was a cave and a stone lay against it jesus said take away the stone martha the sister of the dead man said to him lord by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days so super practical she's like i don't want to smell my decaying brother's body let's just leave him in there jesus said to her did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god so they took away the stone and jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
Remember back at the beginning of this story when Jesus said in verse 3, this illness does not lead, or verse 4, does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. Remember in verse 14 when he said, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now Jesus just prays to the Father and says, Father, I thank you for everything that's going to happen right now because it's going to be a great help to everybody watching. I know that you hear me, God. I know that you hear me, Father. But I'm so thankful. I'm praying out loud right now so that when this thing happens, they will all believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let them go. The last thing I want you to see is that Jesus, he is validated through his life and miracles as the only one who can bring the resurrection of all things like I'm talking about tonight. This validation happens in the way the story unfolds. Jesus prays. He says, Father, you know, you hear, you hear me. So when this happens, then everyone should be able to believe that you've sent me. He then says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, with grave clothes still attached to him, comes out. And Jesus says, unbind him. Let him go. And Lazarus is raised back to life. After four days in the grave, certainly, totally, and completely dead, Jesus raised him back to life. And all of this was meant to be a proof or a clue that when Jesus walks around saying, I'm the Son of God and God the Son, and, and if you believe in me, you'll have life forever, that his claim is worthy of being trusted. It's very similar to a passage in the Old Testament where Elijah, the prophet of Israel, goes up to the mountaintop of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and challenges them to a contest. He says, hey, I'll pray to my God, you pray to your God, and the prophet who is heard or answered by their God is a real and legitimate prophet with a real and legitimate God. And the 450 prophets of Baal, they went all out, man. They set up their altar, they screamed and they yelled and they cut themselves and they prayed and they cried out to Baal and Elijah just kicked back. He mocked them a little bit. He said, hey, where's your God? Where is this Baal? He wasn't a real God, of course. He says, is he on a journey? Is he using the restroom? Is he busy? You know, why isn't he responding to you? But after hours of this nonsense, of these false prophets crying out to a fake God. Elijah took 12 stones and set them up, dug a trench around the altar, asked for water, barrels of water to be poured upon the altar and the meat that he had placed there until it was sopping wet, drenched in and out and everywhere. And then at the time of the evening sacrifice, because God had said, hey, in the morning, and in the evening, offer me a sacrifice. So at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah calmly, unlike these prophets of Baal, says, God, I pray that you would receive my sacrifice. And the fire of God fell down from heaven and consumed the meat, the wood, the stones, and all of the water inside of the trench. It was a way for everybody there that day to go, God is real and Elijah is his prophet. The proof was right there. So here comes Jesus in another episode saying, I'm the son of God. I'm the one who can resurrect you. Here's how you know. When I call this man out of the grave, he will come. Lazarus, come forth. And when Lazarus came out, everyone there that day was to believe in Jesus. But you know, it's not Lazarus's resurrection that is the greatest raising that causes us to believe in Jesus. It's Jesus's own resurrection. Amen. 
you know, the early disciples saw that Jesus had risen from the grave. They saw it, and so they went out and proclaimed it to the world that they lived in. And they were persecuted. Many of them killed because they preached that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. In modern times, people say, oh, it was just a big conspiracy. They said it for some kind of gain that they would receive. But there was no gain. They died. They suffered because of the message that they preached. If it had been a lie, one of them eventually would have cracked and said, it's not true. We made this up so we could start a religion. Please let me live. But none of them ever made that confession. All of them preached to their last breath that they knew that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. And because he rose, you and me, we can have life in him. And we also can rise forever with him and be part of his family forever. So remember at the beginning of this teaching, I said from Dickens, these are the best of times. These are the worst of times. I want to amend that right now. Here's how we would say it. Actually, right now, today, what we're experiencing here on earth, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say this so confidently. These actually are the worst of times. It will get no worse than this. It only gets better and better and better in Jesus. Calvary Monterey's youth ministries meet on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Monterey. Both middle school and high school students are welcome. Come on out. You belong here. And I promise, we don't bite.